This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're here to talk about another book. Just another one. Just another like last book. week. I really feel like people are going to stop listening if we keep doing the same thing over and over again every week for hundreds and hundreds of weeks. You know, if you've been out there since, let's say, <laughs> episode 20 or fewer... Let us know. We'd love to know why you're still here. Because we know yeah, why we're we, still here. What did we do? What did we do right? Or what did we do wrong that you're waiting to see uh, pay off? I'm not sure. Um, but, Andrew, what do we do every week on this here show? Every week on this podcast, Overdue Podcast, it's a podcast. We read a book. One of us does. And then they tell the other person about it. And the listening audience gets to be along for the ride. That's usually how it goes. Yeah. 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 Uh, this week I read Wool by Hugh Howie. Hugh uh, Howie. Hugh Howie, which doesn't sound like a, it sounds like a name from a comic book. So good on him. Hugh Howie. Yeah. He sounds like the kind of guy whose uncle got killed <laughs> and told him about responsibility. <laughs> And yes. now he moon he moonlights as some kind of bug based vigilante. Always with the bug based, like a vigilantes. bug or a small mammal, sort of like an unexpected sort of hero. Sure. Um, and this book was recommended to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Melissa, uh, who said, "I'd love to hear you guys discuss the book Will Wool by Hugh Howie. It's one of my favorite sci fi apocalyptic books. Thanks for keeping up such a great book podcast. Not sure." When Melissa started listening, but let's hope it's from the beginning. I'm also not sure which book podcast she's talking about, yeah. but we can do the one that we do. We can do the <laughs> one that that'll we be good do. Um, um, I will be reporting on the Wool Omnibus Edition, which is a collection of five stories from this universe that Mr. Howie put together. I've read it on my Kindle, which meant that there's a bunch of like animated gifs in it. Oh, uh, let really? me tell <laughs> how do those render on it? Um they're not they're not actually just like gifs from the internet. So there's art by Jimmy Broxton and Darwin Cook in here. And if you turn on the like, I don't know what the advanced media or alternate media setting is, like all of the text has some sort of art behind it. It's not just like you're reading on, on a normal like when I read on my kindle fire it's like white text on black background or something mm -hmm. and this always it's like a full color image and sometimes there are images of characters and then sometimes those images could just kind of move uh i turn one page and like a dude appeared like he just 
like a guy came out of the darkness on one page and kind of <laughs> spooked me. And it doesn't replay. He's just there now. And if you go back, he's still there. Like, okay. You could only experience it for the first time one time. I guess. I mean, maybe. I don't know how the, how it's programmed, but it was okay. certainly different than what I expected. Um, kind of and kind of novel. I have not in, experienced a book like that before. Well, it was a novel. Ah, I see what you did there. Hey. What do you know about Mr. Howie, Andrew? I know that Hugh Howie was born in 1975. Uh-huh. And Wool in particular, but like he, just his whole deal. He's from that era of the internet where it was like, you can self-publish a book? Mm, sure. We've read what? a couple of these. Yeah, yeah. You can self-publish a book online yourself? <laughs> it's like the the early 2010s and it's... I was I was trying to think like what the what was happening around this time just like to to us and our relationship with the internet because you and I are like the last generation that really has any significant memory of a world before the internet. Correct. And so we and I think still sometimes we are inclined to think of the internet as like a thing that is separate from the real world and certainly this was true through like the 90s and, and a lot of the 2000s is there were like there was like internet stuff and then there was like stuff so you could be an internet writer and you could even get a real book published based on your internet writings but they were still kind of separate things you yes, know what i mean sure 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 and sure. you had like an internet personality and your real world personality and they <laughs> were seen as like separate <laughs> things and our understanding of things now have evolved a bit and that's that is i think we can now say that that's garbage and that's that's bad but um <laughs> this was published using kindle direct publishing which launched in 2007 um yes. so that's, and so this is yeah for, around what, to 2011 was this the first 2011 story? was when the first when the first of the five uh wool stories okay. came out and yeah i was just i was just getting around to in a long-winded way saying that this is a phase where Stuff just started to become books. Yeah. Like like now I think stuff that's self-published, like we mentioned it in passing, but you don't get pieces in the Washington Post. And it's very, very hard to find a contemporary review of this book that does not mention Fifty Shades of Grey. It pretty much huh. all of them mention Fifty Shades of Grey. Okay. Because that's the, the era like guys we're talking about. It's like people from forums or from the internet write a thing and then it becomes a real book and everybody's surprised that they were able to do it <laughs> themselves. Okay. This did go on and get like a real, like a, a non-digital exclusive publishing deal though, right? Yeah, like, like the, the reviews of the Omnibus edition are all from 2013, which is, I, I assume, when it came out. But before it was picked up by a publishing house and before it was published in, in real book format or like physical book format. Yeah. Um the five short stories that had been published to Amazon had sold more than 400,000 copies, according to the Washington Post. And the film rights had already been optioned. And a film Whoa. never that never amounted to anything, which is not uncommon. Like, it's, it's pretty <laughs> yes. common for film rights to get sold and then no movie to come out. But as of mid-2018, there were plans to bring it to AMC as a series. Now, I can't find anything since then to huh. indicate where that series is in the development yeah, process. Okay. But it's still somewhere. That could... that could work if someone's trying to make this into a movie stop it make it a tv show that's what i'll say if you're listening whoever's in or charge. you can make it into a tv show that's kind of like a like a 10-hour movie yeah you know, like those are good hours. i like yeah, a 10-hour movie mm -hmm. um 
what else do we know anything else about him i know that he owns a boat and he's i think he's living on his boat now for a decade <laughs> according to his website he did a lot of he had a bunch of jobs he, washington post describes him as the jack of all trades which i guess is a charitable way of describing <laughs> a somebody's kind of midlife <laughs> drifting but i don't know he like painted stuff and then he sold a book he, he was like he was an audio technician. He was a yacht salesman or something. I thought you were gonna stop at yacht. He, he was, was a yacht. yacht. <laughs> he on TV maybe. Um, um, yeah. His website says that now he is like he after he sold this book he like bought a cool boat and then he's gonna try and like circumnavigate the globe. Which spoilers, sir, it's been done. But good luck. Don't shh, don't tell him. <laughs> Has it been done by a jack of all trades, self-published author like Hugh Howie? I don't think so. They've, it's only been done with the support of the big publishing houses. Sure, okay. So. I know he he is like a. Um, it's there's some ecological like climate changey stuff in this book. It's not as explicit um, as a post-apocalyptic work might might be, but you get a sense that he has. He does have an enthusiasm for the natural world, um, as he's written on his website, and then like you, you carry that into reading a book like this, which is set in the future when the Earth is crap, um, and you, you can see the connective tissue there. Um, as we said, this was published directly on the Kindle. There are five books in the Wool series that I read. Um, and he said that like all the reviews for those first several stories are what created this and what created the rest of the series. Um, yeah, there's another there are another couple like omnibus books. Uh, Shift is a prequel series that talks about the world running up to interesting the stuff portrayed in wool, and then Dust is a sequel series. Uh, talking about the end of this world. It's like an apocalypse for the apocalypse. I guess. Neato. Um, <laughs> And yet, all altogether, these stories are referred to as the Silo series. Yeah, that makes sense. Because yeah, it takes place in a big silo that's buried underneath the earth. And that's pretty much, I'd stopped reading there because I wanted you to have something to do Great. on the podcast. That's so kind of you. Because <laughs> <laughs> if I know what happens already, then there's just no point. That's how it works. That is how it works. You could just leave mm-hmm. and I could just talk. It wouldn't be I as could good. do that. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. We're going to mm-hmm. take a break and Andrew promise, please come back pretty tired <laughs> well listeners we're gonna take a quick break and maybe andrew will be here later maybe we'll see andrew do you like music yeah what do you love about music that it sounds good sometimes <laughs> other music doesn't sound good <laughs> Some music sounds good. Other music doesn't sound good. I like the kind that sounds good. Well, if you want to hear people talking about music that sounds good, Andrew, I have good news for you. This week's episode is brought to you in part by one of our Patreon supporters, Amanda and her co-hosts at Discord and Rhyme, which is a music podcast where they discuss their favorite albums song by song. Eight rotating co-hosts 
Uh, take turns choosing a classic or favorite album and talk about it one track at a time, including background info, the making of the album, and how they discovered it in the first place. And they don't restrict themselves in any particular era or genre. They've covered rock, soul, hip-hop, prog, and more. It's available on all the podcatchers, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you want it. And they release a new episode every other Tuesday. I think their most recent episode was on Metal by Pink Floyd. And then <clears throat> Hail to the Thief is coming up soon which is a radiohead album i don't know very well hmm. so i should probably check out this episode actually they've also covered yes and captain beefheart and his magic band it's a good and blue back oyster, catalog and, and blue oyster call they've covered a lot of bands that i don't think of as having made albums like these bands have mm. made songs mm. And then perhaps you release a bunch of other worse songs around that one song and you call that an album. <laughs> well, all the more reason to go check out Discord and Rhyme. You can go to discordpod.com for more info. Follow them at discordpod on the social feeds uh, and check it out every other Tuesday. Andrew, if the world was over or was about to be over as you knew it mm -hmm. what would you like to live in what superstructure would andrew inhabit <laughs> um hmm. hmm is there electricity well it depends on what you choose right if if i choose something that is only fun with electricity is there electricity <laughs> Presumably, you have a way to make some electricity. Yes. Okay. I was th so I was thinking like an arcade, but then I was like, that's too small. Why? I I would like to live in an old mall. I would love to live in an old mall, having spent most of my life already in an old mall, like from the heyday of malls too. Not these ghost, these newfangled ghost malls with all the anchor stores ripped out. No, I if you want to see what the apocalypse would look like, I would suggest you drive somewhere in the Midwest and go to any mall. I would live in a mall, especially if like enough clothes were still there and the equipment. If the, if the Claire's were still open and we could go get stick on earrings. Uh -huh. and things. Definitely. Yes. And if the back chair, if the massages, if like the back massage chairs. Yeah. Still worked, yeah. The massage chairs would be we'd have to hack them so that. <laughs> We wouldn't have to pay dollars hey, for Andrew, it Hey, Andrew, what are you doing? There's hacking a massage chair. Got to hack a massage chair is very important we for the survival of our mall society. That's true. Well, that's where we're going to be, but that's not what this book's about. This book is about a silo that people live in. Um, it's unclear where the silo came from. And at for, for a long period of this book, I thought maybe it was like a nuclear, it was a converted like nuclear missile silo. I guess I, I would guess either that or it's like a the movie 2012 style scenario where just enough people saw this coming that they were able to build a purpose built structure underground well, for this purpose. Yeah. Hold on to that thought, Andrew, because right, that's I'm definitely the right answer. Uh, okay, so, great. <laughs> so when I started reading this book, I didn't know that it was five discrete stories, which the way that some of the information gets meted out was surprising as I was reading it. So I, I am thinking about that because you just guessed a little bit about why the silos are there. Um, the first story or chapter, or whatever you want to call it, um, is about the sheriff of this underground silo. Yes, it has a sheriff, Andrew. Of course it does. <laughs> and his name is Holston. 
and he's not having a good time. Um, his wife died a few years ago because she had to go out and do a cleaning. If you lived in an underground silo society, Andrew, what do you think going outside for a cleaning is? I uh, gotta hang your laundry, the whole silo's laundry, on clo- <laughs> on lines so it can dry out. That would be good if the sky you weren't once, acid. You do it once a year. <laughs> oh yes, we do the one laundry load. Um, the sky the cleaning. is mostly acid and dirt. So when when people go a little bonkers in the silo or commit a heinous crime. They are sent out for a cleaning, and Holston's wife did one three years ago, um, and he's about to do one himself. So Howie loves himself a Tarantino-esque, like, in medias res chapter opening. Oh, okay. I was going to say, like, he just likes to throw vampires into things. <laughs> no. Uh, a book is oddly, it is not very supernatural, If if that is a... Like a type of sci-fi where it's like alien. There's not there. There's no aliens. Aside from um, the apocalypse having happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he likes to like put someone in a dangerous situation. And then you get a little bit of like, uh, I bet you're wondering how I got here. And then like cut back <laughs> a chapter or so. Um, so the sheriff's wife went out for a cleaning. He is about to turn himself in to go for a cleaning. Mostly because he's so grief stricken and can't like just hang anymore he's just having a really rough time can't get over it he can't get over it um and it's also pretty clear that she figured something out about their world that kind of drove her to the brink and he's been sitting on that information also so when you go out for a cleaning so the the information that that she found or the information the information that she knew something uh the information does he, does he know the thing he knows the thing they had a conversation about it or, it or he knows that she is thinking about the world outside so this is the the end of the first story has like a moment where it's like the world is not what you think it is and it felt really early in the book for that moment to happen yeah like i'm not sure what i think the world is yet i'm not sure what preconceptions i have that you yes. can shatter yeah. yeah so it's kind of it's a couple of reveals and i think big picture i found the first half of this book way more uh, interesting than the back half just because like he was able to keep those reveals happening um, and then I was kind of waiting for the ending I could see how so it was going to the- end and yeah. then it was like okay let's get through the adventure part of the story where there's there are fewer like information reveals that are that are clearly what's most exciting about this book yeah that that's interesting I was reading a Guardian review by Allison Flood who says um other elements don't work so well. It's partly down, I think, to the way that the novel developed. It started life as a very good short story. That story grew as readers fell in love with the world how he had created. And as he wrote, the tightness and the skill with which he began unraveled somewhat. He throws in a character who rings false. This is a love interest for a protagonist. Yeah, we'll talk about we'll that. We'll talk about mm-hmm. later. Uh, and while he mostly writes well, sometimes he gets a bit flowery. At one point, he indulges in some truly dire love poetry. Wait for me, wait for me, wait there, my dear... Let these gentle pleas find your ear. Oh, man, that did happen, didn't it? <laughs> Hugh. But yeah, that's a... I'm, I'm sure we talked about this some in the, in, in the intro, but yeah, he, he wrote it and then 
as he tells it, without a lot of like promotion or anything from him, it took off with people. And then he wrote more in response to it taking off. So it's a little bit like that book Pen Pal. Yes, yes, read, yes. Um, for Spooktober this past year. And yeah, the the part where he's the part where he had a story he wanted to tell, it sounds like, is the front part. And then the part where he's writing more because people wanted more, it sounds like might be the back part. Yeah. And it's it's just a it becomes a slightly different book and one that I found personally less exciting. So the the what is really compelling about the first story is um something in the history of this society, which has been people living in this silo for hundreds of years. Um, has been kept a secret by someone. Um, they've been some somebody has been like deleting part of their history. They do have some computers. Um, they don't have like an internet, right? They they you can IM people, but as we learn like later in the book, you have to pay extra money to do it. Um, it's way <laughs> like long distance. It's cheaper. IMing. Yeah, it's cheaper to write a note and send it to someone to run down the giant central staircase in the society. Yeah. How how big a silo are we talking about? At least 150 floors or so. Dang. 140, okay. 150. There's no elevators. This whole thing is ADA non-compliant. <laughs> and I don't Sounds like there isn't an ADA anymore <laughs> well, that's, though. The... Yeah, that's very There might true. not even be an A. I just feel like the if first you had, a, not if you had been one. there for decades, if not even hundreds of years, which they have, you would at least install like a dumbwaiter system. Some kind of a pulley system, yes, sure. Um which does not exist. So or like just maybe a chute that runs from the top <laughs> of the thing to the yeah, bottom of it. Yeah. Um so they above ground there are sensors that show the outside world and in the top few floors of the society there are like walls that are essentially giant video screens that depict the outside disaster world that you're in which is just like brown skies like dirt ground you don't know what happened but it's the apocalypse deal with it why would you want to see that is it to keep people from wanting to go out yeah there? sort of it's to be like okay well we can't go out there um you know what it is and i i made a cheekier note of this later in my notes but here's a good time Ooh, to talk about cheeky. it 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 is it is the the thing about earth not being ready from wally it is the like it is we can't go out there because it's dangerous so we just have to figure out a way to live in here and we're going to keep telling you that it's bad out there so that no one ever thinks about going out there uh-huh um and so when they send someone out for a cleaning they go out there and they're usually some sort of dissident and you can watch the cleaning take place from the videos if you live in the top few Ugh. floors there's like a whole class okay. system of course um it's, t- it's closer to the horrible outside, better or worse? Yes, it is better okay. because those that's where like the bureaucracy lives. There's a mayor, there's a sheriff, there's a deputy sheriff. There are For other this whole building. There's just one mayor. Yes, there's and they have elections. I don't know. There's Boy, like you a- would think that they would split it into districts or something. Well, it's a few thousand. I think it's a few thousand people. So it's like South Bend, Indiana, or something. So let's it's you have a, a mayor. Of, just a lot of. Like the mayor would have really bad knee problems, I think, after a couple of terms. Yeah, book just from two going up and down the dang book thing. Book two is all about a woman named Johns who's been the mayor for a long time. She's old and she has to walk all 140 floors, and it sucks. Yeah, and she has a terrible time doing it. You would think an opponent would be able to capitalize that on that in an election. Most people run unopposed, ironically enough. 
So this old mayor is so <laughs> decrepit that ultimate insider. She's been inside for so long she can't even climb the stairs to deal with the problems that everyday silo dwellers like you and me face. This mayor's gonna promise an elevator, but how's he gonna pay for it? <laughs> um, so when you go out for a cleaning, you're usually some sort of dissident, and they ex- they put you in a suit. And you go out there, and everyone does the cleaning. They always do it, Andrew. Even though you think, oh, they were a dirtbag, they didn't like the silo or whatever, why do they always turn around and clean the sensors? Um, Well, you find out at the end of this story when Holston goes out there to do the cleaning. He walks up the ramp. The airlock opens. There's like a whole thing where like the airlock has to push out a bunch of gas to keep the bad air out and then you have uh-huh. to get out of the airlock before the fire starts to burn all the bad air mm-hmm. and he goes out there now keep in mind his wife has done this before and before she went she told him that the people in it knew secrets that the people need to know i'm just gonna say that to you because we'll come back to it I mean, that's typical i feel of all <laughs> it departments in all organizations <laughs> but okay so he's got this like his dead wife was like hey what if the our world isn't the real world he goes out there top of the ramp holston saw the heaven into which he'd been condemned for his simple sin of hope he whirled around scanning the horizon his head dizzy from the sight of so much green Green hills, green grass, green carpet beneath his feet. Holston whooped in his helmet, his mind buzzed with the sight. Hanging over all the green, there was the exact hue of blue from the children's books, the white clouds untainted, the movement of living things flapping in the air. And he's like, oh man, the walls are fake. It was like, he has never seen The Matrix, but he'd be like, it's like The Matrix, they told us it was bad. Uh Everybody's got to come out here. And so he turns around and he goes back and he starts cleaning the sensors. And he's like, you guys got to see this. And then he starts running out of air and he's having trouble. So he's like, okay, well, I'll just take my helmet off because it's beautiful out here. He takes his helmet off and his helmet was a screen and it was lying to him. And Mm -hmm. it is bad out there. Mm -hmm. And he dies. World (laughs) sucks. You're dead. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) okay, what an opening to a book. This is pretty cool. Uh-huh. And that's the that's the story that launched the rest of this series, right? It's a cool like double twist that I found pretty effective. The twist is that stuff isn't bad, but then the double twist is actually it is bad. Yes, and you're left okay. wondering like why would that happen? What's the deal with the silos? What did she find out? What do the people at IT know that we need to know about how the printers work or whatever? <laughs> Um, and so then the second book, as I said, is about the mayor and the deputy sheriff after the, uh, Holston has died and they need to hire a new sheriff, of course, because the old one got killed. Yep. And so she decides that she is going to hire this young woman named Juliet who works in the mechanical department all the way down at the bottom of the silo. So she's going to walk all the way down as the mayor. She hasn't done it in four years. And she is going to like, you know, stop and talk to people along the way so that they're like, hey, vote for me. Kind of she's it's her primary, essentially. And she does have to stop by I.T., Andrew, to get them to sign off on her hire. Uh Um, And I.T. is essentially the deep state of the silo. Like 
There's a dude the named unelected bureaucrats. Yes, who there's a, have all the real power. So there, I think, if I recall correctly, the society follows um, the the legacy, the order, and the pact are like their three uh, like documents that are not like a constitution or something like that, but kind of like the the rule books that they follow. And I don't know that everybody knows about the legacy. I know that a lot of people know like a sub book called the law or something. But it mm-hmm. is the keeper all, of all this stuff. And Bernard runs IT. They get exemptions from like power consumption stuff because they were maintaining all these servers. And nobody really knows what they do in there. But they also prepare the suits for the people who have to go outside so that they can like be in charge of that. And Bernard has a different like nomination for sheriff uh, because he doesn't like Juliet because she had some shady requisitions. Uh Uh, And... The mayor's like, well, no, I'm going to have my own sheriff because I can't be bossed around by IT. That would be bad. Um, and so she goes off to recruit Juliet. Uh, Juliet negotiates like some sort of power holiday so that she can work out a pump and then she'll agree to be sheriff. And then, oh, look, at the end of that book, uh, the mayor dies because uh, someone poisoned her, presumably from IT. Mm-hmm. Power struggle. You know how it is. You worked in IT. You ever poisoned anybody? This, I, bo- I this mean, it was will not be played in a court have of law. The people who managed the computer labs and the people who did like the like the main support for clients just to have constant turf wars. The sysadmins were poisoning everybody all the time. <laughs> is there real? There is like truth to that power dynamic, though, right? Of like you keep the pro. You are the keeper of the processes. You are the the one who knows how things work and not maybe that's not a thing that you hold on to because you're evil but just because people can't be bothered to learn how their computers work i guess <laughs> you did you enjoy working in it andrew i, I did in retrospect yes mm. and at the time also mostly yes but you know all all jobs i've learned after having a bunch of jobs for a few years apiece, I've learned that there's just like kind of a baseline level of malcontent that I just settle into. <laughs> <laughs> and at my at my first IT job, I that that was the level that I was at. <laughs> okay, it was only at the second one that I exceeded that level. Sure, that's fair. Um, so the third book is like Juliet versus IT. Um, Juliet, the new sheriff in town, is going to drain the swamp and take out the deep state. Mm-hmm. Um, not really. She is going to investigate why Holston died. The sh- the sheriff. Um, again, we get like a Tarantino opening to this book where she is going to go out for a cleaning, and you're like, how could that happen? Well, Andrew, she gets arrested twice, and the second time winds up with her going out. For- Who arrests the sheriff? It. Who sheriffs the sort sheriff? of? Mm. Yeah, the. Well, the deputy sheriff and who was in like a relationship with the mayor, he takes his life and so there's an opening um and IT puts their man in as the deputy sheriff. So there's like a mutiny against her later in the book. I see. Um this is like the last big that I found like really satisfying and interesting like reveal of how the world works which is after Juliet has been sheriff for a little while, after she has met her quote-unquote love interest, Lucas, who she meets at night because he's, like, sitting in the room with the wall TVs, like, making star charts because it's dark enough to see stars, sort of. 
Um, but it's sort of taboo because you're talking about the outside world, so you shouldn't do that. No one does that. Um, what? Why would you have big video monitors up if you didn't want people to talk about it? <laughs> uh, she, her contact in IT, a dude who used to work in mechanical, sends her some information uh, based on what she was researching about the sheriff that the the stuff that his wife had found was a program. And the program, Andrew, it it is in 64-bit color. And the guy says, why would anyone need that much color? Because <laughs> presumably they're all using like Commodore 64 like interfaces. or Not even that. Yeah, I mean, like, there's, just, there's like a, a famous quote that I think is a little bit taken out of context, but like Bill Gates saying at some point in like the 70s or 80s, why would anybody ever need more than 640 kilobytes of RAM? Oh, that's funny. Okay. Which um, is, if you don't know about <laughs> RAM, that's a lot less. That's a lot less than whatever you're listening to this on. Man, I remember... Like several thousand times less. I remember in the 90s when it was like, man, do I have four megabytes of RAM? Heck yeah, I could play Star Wars. Like, let's go. I'm, on the e-machines that we got in like 1999, we stuck a 128 megabyte stick of RAM in there. Whoa! Like a 32 megabyte stick that it came with. Did it just catch on fire with efficiency? It was, <laughs> it was like, wow, this computer goes now. This <laughs> It was real bad before, but now it's actually okay. So she learns that this program, not only did it do 64-bit color, it could create images, Andrew. Whoa, Photoshop. And so did they she, just find a Mac, like an old Mac, like an old Apple really, Lisa down there? And in by the silo. images, I mean it could project like video images. Basically, she oh. this dude finds the program that in her mind is what Holston thought first, which is, oh man, they could. They could project anything onto the walls. And the outside world could be a total lie. And we'd never know because they could just be, they could be putting, you know, Yule logs up there. And that's why he was so primed to believe the, the, the green thing, helmet, yes. the helmet lie. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit later is when we get her. She is, she is also the one who starts thinking about, wait a second. Why does all of the, why is our society set up in a way where it's cheaper to send a man running down a hundred flights of stairs with a note than it is for me to IM someone? Why is that so expensive? Maybe someone wanted it to be expensive. Maybe IT has been controlling our lives the whole time. And that leads her to, to follow up on this like program lead where a dude writes back and he's like, hey, it's for 32,768 pixels by 8,192. Does that, is, does that make sense to you, Andrew? Is that a resume? Say again. Say 32,768 pixels by 8,192 pixels. Sure. Whatever. They're like, it's an 8-inch by 2-inch screen with an incredible pin pixel density. Why would you need that? Yeah, that's like a lot of pixel density. Yes. And so she... With a friend of hers from Mechanical Walker, they put together that essentially this is the resolution of a screen that could go in front of your face. Oh, yeah, like a VR sort of screen. Yeah. And she also, like, this was a little, I didn't really follow the argument as this one was taking place, but she has been complaining about some heat tape 
that they got in mechanical from IT a while ago because it gave out really easily and like broke a whole bunch of machines. And they, she posits that IT has been putting faulty heat tape on the cleaner suits on purpose so that the people die in a specified amount of time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's like a what? like he was because he was like running out of air, right? So the well, and the his suit his suit was suit decaying, like yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so like when she gets sent out for her cleaning, her mechanical people have taken care of her. They've swapped out the bad heat tape for the good heat tape. Okay, and she knows that the the visor is a lie, mm-hmm. and. She is able to survive out there long enough to find another silo. Ooh. Ooh. And so the back third of the book, eh, more than that, back like two fits because it starts in the middle of the third story, um, is her like in this other silo encountering another person, uh, trying to like figure out what happened to that silo because everything's gone to crap. And then maybe reuniting with the people. Oh, so it's like it's more de- decayed or like less. Yes. Uh, it, it's functioning less well than the silo she came from. It is the exact layout and it is clear. There is She meets one guy there and it is clear that the same type of colony used to live there. But there was some sort of uprising. In Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh-huh. At some point like mid series they introduced the concept that there was a sister station Uh-oh. <laughs> to deep space nine <laughs> that instead of being reclaimed by the federation or repurposed was just abandoned mm. and it was clearly just an excuse to use the same sets but just like stack a bunch of boxes everywhere and be like yeah this is a this is abandoned it's this different. is a different this is definitely a different a whole different place that's been abandoned that we can set some dangerous stories in now. Sure, 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 yeah. sure. Uh, and when and the camera angle, like the establishing shot camera angles, always had the station like tilted, even though it's in space and there's like no orientation that exists. And that's how you could tell. That's how you could tell the difference between Deep Space Nine and this other sister station. It's interesting that, that you say that's where they set like dangerous stories because. Once she gets to this other silo and meets it, meets this dude who's been living there for decades by himself, um, it becomes just like a sci-fi adventure story that is a little less like her story is not the one you get more world building out of. And I found that like I was kind of not as interested. It is like she's going deep underwater in this suit that she that she built uh, so that she can try and turn on a pump to drain all the water so that maybe she can make this silo more livable or something. Um, and the individual details are like interesting um, and kind of clever, like the kind of obstacles that she has to deal with, but it is not the same as a character like learning more about the world around them, which gets shuttled over to the class warfare uprising that happens okay. where... <laughs> Uh, and it's it's been foreshadowed in this book that every generation or so that this might happen and it goes south and then like the culture works to make everyone forget that it's happened. Uh-huh. Um, mostly the people in IT are doing a lot of that work. But um, there if I had to guess, I feel like the original IT people may might have been like whatever government officials or something yes. like ran this facility in the first place. Yes. 
Um, and they and they just maintain that power as they let the people under them form some kind of system to keep themselves busy and to take care of like day to day stuff. Yes, and you also like they instill a stratification where um, they are up in like the thirties, and all of the people with any sort of engineering and mechanical know how have to work and live down in like the hundred and forties. So they're very far away from kind of their like people who might people whose work they could maybe check or like ask mm-hmm. questions about or things like okay. that um and so this uprising happens which is again like a big action-packed part of the book that i was just like yeah people are dying and shooting up stuff um but one of the speeches that happens it's one of the leaders i think of the supply people is like talking about how the middle class of the silo is like the worst of them all um why are you so wild up she says because you lost a good friend that happens all the time no it's because you were lied to and the toppers will feel this ever more keenly trust me they live in sight of those who've been lied to it's the mids the people who aspire upward without knowing and who look down on us without compassion that will be the most reluctant so just a real attack on the falseness of the middle class in this (laughs) silo Sure. You do get in the mayor chapter, you get like she wanders through the like 60s or 70s and it's like a big open air bazaar or something where people are just kind of trading stuff and they're not really worrying about the outside world or the running of the silo. They're just kind of living their lives and the mm-hmm. how he kind of paints all those people in a negative light. Um, but bizarre. Yeah. So the the, the last Bits of world building. That one? I that do song? remember this. <laughs> which one? Which band was that, Andrew? It was not Marcy's Playground. It was not Sixpence None the Richer. It was OMC. OMC. I don't know who that is. I do not know who that is. <laughs> Google thinks the album that the song was on was Now That's What I Call Music 34. <laughs> <laughs> so. So obviously the rest of OMC's work has been lost to the algorithm. Sure. No word on what there's really no word on what music people in this world are listening to. Unless I missed something, but I could use some information about that. Anyway. You can find an old cache of now that's what I call music CDs. Man. That would be a fun What if that story. was the hey, Hugh Howie, get on that one? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um the the extra world building we get in the back half of the book is through our man Lucas, who Again, that review you mentioned is like he's presented as a love interest for her. They do reunite at the end of the book. They do manage to talk via radio when she's in the other silo. But I don't really... Sort of a Bioshock situation. Yeah, I don't really buy a connection except for the fact that like they're just, you know, two people who sort of see the world differently. And I I don't know that Howie is less interested in that. And I think he's doing it because he knows it could be a hook for readers, but I don't know that it is his strong suit. Um, Lucas gets recruited by the head of IT to become the next, like, keeper of IT, which means that he gets locked in a room with a book about the before times (laughs) and is, like, forced for weeks on end while this uprising is happening and, like, people are fighting on the stairwell. Um, he has to sit in there and read about like why this is the way this is, what we do about it, and why we need to maintain the silo. He is also told that there were 50 silos, 
and that they were put in place as an act of preservation. He does have a radio phone call with a dude who seems to be in charge of all the silos. We don't we don't learn much more about this. Maybe it's covered in the other books. Um, the Operation 50 of the World Order, he calls it. Yeah, that's the face I made. It's a little... Did an IT person write this? <laughs> because that's the only way I can kind of square the ultimate power that, that Howie's decided to give the IT people in this universe. It's like, <laughs> actually, know. they're the only people who really know what's going on. So the the little scene we get between Lucas and this shadowy figure is like him being like, how did this happen? Uh, and he's like, do you really want to know? He's like, why don't you tell me what you think? And he's like, well, something bad was going to happen to the Earth and we were able to prepare for it, or someone was. And I guess if you really think about it, the only way to have prepared for it as effectively as we did is to have caused it. Dun, dun, dun. Uh-oh. So again, we don't really know what exactly did happen. Bernard goes on to say um, in his like big scene where he just is the most middle manager ever, where he's like, listen... I didn't choose to live in this silo and be in the apocalypse, but by golly, I'm going to keep the rules because that's the only way I can maintain power. Mm -hmm. Um, He says they, he's talking about whoever set this up. They might still be doing it for all I know, like bombing parts of the world where there are survivors. Nobody talks about how long it's supposed to go on. There's fear that small pockets of survivors might be holed up elsewhere around the globe. Operation 50 is completely pointless if anyone else survives. The population has to be homogenous, and he gets cut off. And he goes on to talk about, like, someone had a plan. A powerful country was coming to its end, and they decided that a way to preserve their way of life would be to like scorched earth everything else and force people to live in a like a resource scarce society where their experiences would be so similar and tightly bound that they wouldn't be able to come into conflict with one another. So in that context, 50 is an interesting number to pick. Yeah, it's definitely America. America mm-hmm. definitely did it. <laughs> um that they do they have a map and three of the silos have gone south. Um, so there's only 47 left uh, and you don't find out any more about that. Um, but the the like Bernard's kind of crappy argument of like, I didn't choose to be here, but I'm going to make the best of it is on the f- flip side. Actually, also the heart of the book from Juliet's perspective. She's talking to Lucas on the ra- on the radio and she says, none of us asked to be where we are. What we control is our actions once fate puts us there. Um I guess, like, this book made me think about some, like, climate-based apocalypse scenarios, even though I don't think the book is about them. And I think, like, what level of forgiveness is necessary, or not even forgiveness, but just, like, blank slating is necessary to come at an honest solution. Um there is a certain part of the conclusion of this book, which is a like people start spreading the word about what really is going on. And there's a threat that there's you know going to be more information shared. But it's really mm-hmm. like a thing that gets brought up again and again is like how much of a clean slate do you need to come at an honest solution or an effective solution? Uh, 
and how he seems to be presenting that from both a good and a positive angle. And I just when I both think a about good and a positive. Oh, excuse me, a good and a bad angle. Sorry. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to. He's using like he puts that. How he only sees the upside. He, he puts that logic in the mouths of like both protagonists and antagonists. Is what I'm trying to say. Got it. There you go. Um, okay. And I think about that in terms of like how much eco-terrorism am I comfortable with as a person facing a climate disaster? How much like what do we need to do? What do who do we need to blame and who do we need to just like get on board and what's the difference and what are we supposed to do about this big existential problem? Um, because that that was a thing that was like batting or if you wrote this story now, I don't see how you could put that in the background if this was some of the stuff you were interested in. Like, this was written in 2011. Things were obviously bad, and people were raising warning signs. It wasn't, like, top-of-the-line news in the same way. Um, and well, and it didn't... I By 2011, I guess, I don't I don't know. I, I know that in the, 20, like the 2008 presidential campaign, there was still a sense that it was an issue that both sides could agree was an issue sure and that and that the solutions just differed whereas now it definitely feels like there is a there is a deeply entrenched like a half of the country that chooses to believe that it isn't a thing that it just isn't something we need to worry about and so things feel much less possible yeah yeah, in the way that things always feel less possible when there's just like a basic set of facts that people can't. And so this book is definitely, on. yeah, this book is definitely about like, I know I didn't mean to like surprise bummer you, but it was definitely no, what was it's in fine. My brain. I'm always, I'm always just a couple <laughs> of thoughts away from a surprise bummer. Well, it's just like this book. Other books have done this, the kind of like not even necessarily post-apocalyptic. I was thinking of The Giver a lot while I was reading this book, where like. Stories where they tell the you IT people are givers. They are. They do. They keep the memories, and then they hit you with a USB stick, and then you have their memories. Um, where you're told the world is and can only be one way, and what are the forces maintaining that illusion, and what is the cost of breaking that illusion? Like that is what this book is about at its best, and at its worst, it's just taking a long time to get there. <laughs> um, and so I was, you know, I found myself thinking a lot about like the the climate thing and also the the whole like putting them in silos. I don't know if you were able to find anything interesting. It was reminding me of the like the seed projects where we are like somewhere in Iceland or in Scandinavia, we've like stored a bunch of plants seeds in the event that things go sour like in a giant refrigerator. Is that Yeah, a there's thing? a um I mean, so the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is probably the one that you were yeah, thinking of, yeah. but just like a seed, a seed bank or a seed library is a thing that exists in a lot of places. That Global Seed Vault is is kind of a backup for those. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, which is what I found when I was looking. I just found what what level I'm curious. What level of interested in survivalism are you? My oh, level dang. of interest is. 
maybe I should own like a water filter and know how a gun works. <laughs> yes. But I haven't actually acted on that. My yet. level of interest is I will talk to anyone about bug out bags, but I have yet to buy a bug out bag. There you go. Okay. So interested, but not, not at an actionable level yet. We're no. at the same level. Okay. okay. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> yeah. Reading about survivalism is interesting because it takes a lot of different forms based on like the stuff that's happening in, in time. Like yeah. it, it has its roots, I think in the, in like post-World War II, like bomb. Yes. Yes. Scare bomb feared stuff. But then like through the seventies, it becomes about like the monetary system collapsing. And then there's like a Y2K phase and, now we're getting into sort of a climate change phase and just ugh. I don't know if we've talked about it on the show before. I was talking to somebody about it this week. When Y2K was about to happen, I went home for winter break that year and I did think very strongly to myself, what if Y2K happens and I don't have to go back to school? That was a real exciting thought I had as an eighth grader who didn't want to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> And there was a Twitter thread going around not that long ago about how Y2K was overblown. And then there are a bunch of people saying, no, Y2K was an example of a thing where we identified a problem and then we solved it. And then it wasn't a problem. It's, it's very much like a vaccine thing where you're trying to prove a negative, I yes, guess. Yes, yes, but yes. Well, and in, in the instance of Y2K, it was a problem that we created, too, similar to a problem that we're exacerbating now with climate change. We didn't think, yeah. we didn't think that computers would exist for more than <laughs> 40 years. <laughs> anyway, we're off topic we're, a little, yeah, except it, we're talking about survivalism, I guess. Yeah, I have there. This book also reminded me of an episode of one of the like isn't aren't these houses wacky shows on Netflix where like a dude was buying an underground like tunnel to go live in and mm -hmm. all of his rhetoric was very like well when the planes start falling out of the sky like I'm gonna be somewhere where I can play board games with my family like listen this is where I'm gonna be so I gotta <laughs> buy this tract of land that no one else can find. Make sure your cameras don't show any addresses. <laughs> like, sure. and that stuff kind of wigs me out because I, those aren't. That's a person I don't want to be in one of these silos with because they've already made the choice that this is necessary as opposed well, to like. They're not gonna share their stuff with me. They hate yeah, me. Yeah, they hate me. They hate me in my tree hugging life and my unpreparedness. Yeah. Um. Yeah. This book made me think about a lot of stuff outside itself and i think the reason i like found my my mind not wandering because it was still tied to the book but the f the fact that juliet who was a compelling main character for most of the first half kind of gets relegated to an underwater terror adventure and i have very strong negative feelings about deep sea diving um underwater terror adventure is what they call the poseidon adventure in japan <laughs> <laughs> like there's a there's a level i don't like going underwater in the game shadow of the colossus andrew and you can't even go that deep under that water and i hate it i don't like dark water that i can't see in freaks On me out honeymoon i i tried to uh snorkel with or not even snorkel it was like 
scuba diving, like whatever is like 20 feet under the water instead of like one foot under the water. (laughs) And I did it and I knew that I wasn't going to like it, but I was going to do it because (laughs) Suzanne wanted to do it and because I thought I would be fine and I was not fine. No, I don't want it. And so I was reading that part of the book being like, I don't want it. And that's on me, I guess. Um, (sighs) But I wished that she had been part of the Lucas learns about the shadowy figures scenes and not just Lucas because he was just kind of a cipher for that information. Well yeah and you've got it you got a better you got a better read on her perspective yes. at that point. Yes. So I guess it would be a more interesting set of eyes through which to process that information. Yeah. But and then I can also see, you know, the discussion that about this maybe becoming like if you're going to adapt this story or these sets of stories, it would work better as like a Walking Dead-esque AMC show, even though Walking Dead has clearly run its course, um, where you do need multiple perspectives to kind of flesh it out. I don't know. Um, I see what people dig about this because the world building, even for, yes, it's another post-apocalyptic people are trapped in a thing story. The characters are pretty distinct and interesting. I love uh, Evil IT Department as uh, an anchor device for the world. And I think the, like questions of why you would keep this prison running and the reality like the mechanisms to maintain alternate realities are were pretty interesting um to dig through mm-hmm. i don't know anything else that you want to talk about no i feel like we've done enough <laughs> that's fine i wish i do wish that he had he gives like a few nods to the fact that there's some sort of religion and that maybe god create like people believe that god created the silo for them um, that's very underexplored. I I hope that in the other books, he at least pays like some sort of lip service to like who concocted that story, <laughs> because it <laughs> seems like a pretty big one. Um, sure. That God would build a silo in the ground for them and give them computers. <laughs> uh, I guess, especially when there's so much evidence, like existing evidence to the contrary. I guess i'm just complaining about how religion works as a concept but it's yeah it just doesn't it it seems the other thing and i'll this will be my thought my closing thought the other like because you learn that things are not what they seem so early but it's very clearly like of just a future version of our world my experience as a reader was like just waiting for each shoe to drop of like oh this is how it relates to actual factual history oh this is how it relates to it being America um, and then having kind of like little snippets of like an underwritten God myth or something rings a little false in, in context. Sure. Um, okay. Anywho, if folks want to tell us where they would live in an apocalypse, if they had their choice, what a terrible <laughs> sentence. Um, you can tell that to us, email us at overduepod at gmail.com. Or Twitter and Facebook.com slash Overdue Pod. A lot of folks reaching out in the last week um, in response to all sorts of stuff, including our great episode about vampires with the SSR podcast last week. Uh, thanks to Psyduck, Pim Pim, Rain, Aaron, Dominique, Graham, Allegra, Tessa, Ricky, Kit, Blair, Katie, Ben, and many more. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. We are also on Spotify and on Stitcher. Subscribe to us using any of those fine services and rate and review us in Apple Podcasts to let us know how you feel about the show. 
Uh, we also have links to the books that we have read and are going to read, and we'll have our February schedule up there pretty soon. I know we know what I'm reading, but I forget what it is. The Wind Ungone by who? Alice Randall? Is that right? Yes. That's right. I got it. Didn't even have to re- re- look it up. I just knew. Nice. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.